Bishop. <laughs> So um, just for a start, um, we're going to have an experiment um, later on. Um, in the, at the end of the service, we're going to suggest that we put the chairs to the side routinely. Because when we did that the other week, actually conversation was much better, it was much safer, there was much more space. If you need to sit on a chair, it's fine. You can sit on one. No one's going to pull it from underneath you. Um, but we'll just create a bit more space. And then those who clean in the week, it's actually one less thing for them to do. So it good for that as well so we might it might not be appropriate to tell you that again at the end so please can you remember so the ten commandments i have to say that i have been pushing these away not literally in terms of my behavior but in terms of studying them in church for um 27 years in fact <laughs> so i think that's quite quite good really um i think we're all aware of them aren't we the ten commandments it's one of those things I suspect that most of us would struggle to remember all of them if we hadn't just had them read to us. We might have remembered a few of the kind of more obvious ones, but some of the stuff around God at the beginning, I think we'd have mushed that all into one, and there's a few we probably would have forgotten. And before we kind of get going on this particular one, I want us to um, clarify a few things, really. First of all, they are 10 commandments, not 10 suggestions. See, our culture pretty much understands them as being suggestions. You know, so far as it's possible, if your circumstances allow, then try to abide by these things. But, you know, otherwise, well, they're just suggestions of how life should be. They are not. They say, thou shalt not in the old versions, or thou shalt. They are commandments, and commandments are things that we should obey. Nor are they a little bit like the more old-style exam papers where you would have 10 questions available and it would say at the top, of these 10 questions, attempt only three. It isn't like that either. You can't select. You can't say, yes, I like these ones. I find these easier, so I'm going to do these ones. You can't even think that you're really impressive if you manage 8 out of 10. I mean, that's a good score, isn't it? But that's not an option either. They are 10 commandments, all equally valid. Also, despite what our prevailing culture may say, these commandments are absolute and not obsolete. And that's really important because everything around us is saying, Oh, you don't really want to be bothered with that. And in these mitigating circumstances, that's all right, isn't it? But actually, these are still commandments from God. He has not changed, and the commandments are absolute and not obsolete. They will never be obsolete, by the way, just in case you're wondering how long you've got. They are the foundation of our legal system. It might have added a whole bunch more laws on top, but frankly, these are the most important ones, and the others are just kind of... And we may have drifted a bit from these Ten Commandments, but they are at the base of our entire legal system. They are foundational to everything else that we are about, foundational to our relationship with God, to our relationship with one another, and to what our hearts are doing at any point. So, let me give you a brief kind of context, and it is brief. The people of Israel had found themselves in slavery in Egypt 
for several hundred years. They have been there. Generations have passed since the days of Abraham and Isaac. And Okay, so Jacob overlaps a little bit. But there's hundreds of years. They are in slavery. Eventually, at the end of that period of slavery, we know the story well of the Exodus, where God allows them to be freed from Pharaoh and from slavery and to get out of the land of Egypt. Then they spend 40 years in the wilderness, but they didn't need to spend that long there. They just did, because they're little bit slow like we are. And then they are to be in the promised land, the land for the people of God. This is a defining time for them in the wilderness of learning what it means to be the people of God. This is about restored identity. So all this time in the wilderness... They are given the law. Please put your hand up if you've ever tried to read the Bible starting on the first page, as opposed to using a plan. How many of you have ground to a halt somewhere the end part of Exodus to Leviticus into Numbers? Yeah. So all this period of time is around God helping them to establish their identity in the giving of the law. It's about who they really are as God's people. Most of them don't know. They know that they're Hebrews. They know that they were in slavery. They know that that wasn't a good thing and the Egyptians didn't like them too much. But really, they probably didn't know too much about who they really were. Some of the stories were still there but their experience had not been like the stories. And so in this time, God tells them, this is who you are. You are my chosen people. You are my precious possession. You are the people who belong to me. I'm taking you into this land. In this period of time, they understand what their values are as God's people. They're not like the Egyptians. They're not like the surrounding nations. They have the values that reflect the holiness and mercy of God, his love for them. And those values you see throughout all the law. And they learn how they're supposed to behave. So they have to work out, what are we supposed to eat? What are we supposed to wear? Where should we worship? How should we worship? What should it look like? Who should we marry? Who should we not marry? What's okay in our relationships? All of that stuff that you find in Exodus, and then Leviticus, and then some of it's all over again in Numbers, and unless you're a mathematical person, you probably skipped quite a bit of that, but the story's great, by the way. Oh, and then... Deuteronomy, which actually means second number, so then you get it all over again. These five books were the basis of the Jewish faith because they were all about identity. Who are you and how should you live as the people of God? This is what it looks like to be a person or people in relationship with Yahweh, the Lord of all things. And right in the middle of that is these Ten Commandments, the foundation of the law and the identity of the people of God. As they go forward, the people needed to learn that true freedom comes through boundaries. In case you can't see that, it's two goldfish playing seesaw. And one of them ends up outside the tank, where, of course, you die if you're a goldfish. You know, they needed to learn that freedom came through boundaries. These are not random rules. These are boundaries established by the God who made us and loves us. 
and longs for us to enjoy a relationship with him and each other. You know, we know that boundaries are good, really. We, we also have an inclination to push every boundary. And if you currently have either a toddler or a teenager, you will be particularly aware of that. We push boundaries. But as parents and carers, we understand that boundaries are important for true freedom, for protection, for well-being, for understanding who we are and how we should work. Now, there's such a strong parallel there with our discipleship, isn't there? We choose to follow Jesus. He encounters us. We respond to his call on our life. We come out of the slavery of sin and death, out of the power of Satan, and we have a new life. But at that point, many of us are floundering around going, I don't know how this works. I don't know who I am. I don't know how I'm supposed to behave. I don't know what my value system is. And discipleship is all about us learning to be followers of Jesus, a new person in Christ, new people in him. So it seemed to us a little obvious, and we don't like to be obvious. We like to keep you guessing. Seemed a bit obvious to start at number one. So we thought that we'd start at number 10 and work backwards. So that'll kind of keep us on our metal, won't it? So I get to start with, do you not covet? You see, if number one is, you shall have no other gods before me, then that really is like the shining bright star in the galaxy of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? It is the main thing that sets us apart. You shall have no other God beside me. But maybe it's a little bit easier for us to move from the outside of the galaxy to the things that feel a little bit more familiar before we get right into the center, which is very close to Easter as well, and think about what that really means in the light of what we have already learned from the Ten Commandments. So here we are. Do not covet. The thing that is different about coveting, really, from most of the other commandments is that it's invisible. So you're all sitting there looking very lovely this morning, of course. I cannot tell whether you are coveting something that belongs to the person sitting next to you. I don't know if, for example, you might be coveting mixed sweatshirts. <laughs> I uh, admit to coveting the Ramsbottom hashtag do you know him sweatshirts yesterday and wish that Phil had thought of that last January when there was a lot of snow on the ground when we went outside rather than t-shirts. I mean, who needs a t-shirt in January? We can't see it. It's invisible. If I steal, it is evident. If I lie, you probably will hear it. If I murder, not great for my career prospects. But if I covet, you can't see. And I can live with that sin in different shapes and forms for a really long time. And you would never know, probably. Coveting is kind of at the root of many of the other sins, isn't it? Because it's as I allow that covetousness 
to grow within me that I may eventually steal. And that stealing may be a physical item or it may be another person's husband. But covetousness is at the root of that. The commandment starts very close to home. Because you know what, when I see a celebrity on the television and they own a Caribbean island, I think, oh, for that. But you know what, it's not going to change my heart because it's a fleeting thing and it's totally unrealistic. And so it doesn't affect me really. When it's your neighbour, well, then it's every day, isn't it? Every day that you look at them and think, I wish our house was. I wish my car was. I wish my wife was. I wish my kids were. I wish my job. And every day, there's that friction. And when there's everyday friction, then that grows, doesn't it, in a way that aspiring to be like a celebrity with a Caribbean island never will touch your heart. Because every day I have to put it down again. Every day I have to deal with it. And so this commandment says, do not covet your neighbor's house or wife or servant or donkey or widescreen TV. It starts close to home. But you know what? The root of covetousness is not actually desire itself because God gives us desires, doesn't he? We have deep desires, desires for joy, desires to belong, desires to be significant. It's good that we have a desire to eat because otherwise we would fade away. We have a desire to live our life in companionship with another person because that's what God has made us to be like. It's actually when our desires become distorted that we have the issues. So when my desire to eat becomes a controlling passion in my life, then that is greed. And that leads to all sorts of stuff. When my desire to have a partner changes to a desire for somebody else's partner, then that potentially leads down the road towards adultery. And we'll think about that in a few weeks' time. You see, it's not the desire that's the issue. It's the distorted desire. It's the desire when sin comes in and affects it. You know, those distorted desires began at the earliest point in our human history, in the garden, when that slippery question comes along to Eve. Did God really say? Did God really say? Did God really say that you cannot eat of all the trees in the garden? Because the trees of the Garden of Eden, chapter 2 and verse 9, are delightful and pleasant. Did God really say? And Eve answers. She says, yeah, God didn't say. God said we could eat of all the trees of the garden, except for the one that's in the middle. And then she says... And we cannot even touch that. See, because sin is really clever. Because God never said that they couldn't touch the tree. He just said they couldn't eat from it. But whenever we hear something and we think, I want that. 
We exaggerate the things that God has told us. We make it seem worse than it is. And instead of saying, we can eat everything. There's just one tree over there that we're not allowed to. But look at all this that we have. Suddenly, the whole orientation of her life is towards this one tree. And in, verse, in chapter 3 and verse 6, it said that she strongly desired. That's the same word for covet. She strongly desired that which God had put off limits to her. You know, this is the application, isn't it? I must not set my sights on that which I have no right to possess. That's what coveting is. It's setting our sights on something that we have no right to possess. It's strongly desiring something that God has put off limits. You know, one of the reasons that I think that we do that is that we have issues with the kind of goals and targets that we set in our life. We choose the wrong things to aim for, things that are by their very nature transient. So we are encouraged in our culture to pursue happiness, aren't we? Happiness is top of the tree at whatever price. The question is, are you happy? If you're not happy, change something in your life. And whenever we get to a point where we are saying to ourselves, when I have this, I will be happy. This is necessary for my happiness, then we have crossed the line into coveting. If ever we think that anything or any other person is necessary for our happiness, we are starting to covet that thing. Because God alone is the one who allows us to be happy. It's our relationship with him. We're not going to define happiness, by the way, this morning. But when we think that other things will make us happy, or when we allow something to so embed itself in our mind and our thinking and our emotions that it becomes like a controlling passion in our lives, and we think, when I acquire this, then we also are coveting. You know, we've been there, haven't we? In the simplest thing, somebody said to me this morning, because I mentioned ice cream, and they said, you know, it's so funny, I was driving past Billy Bob's. It's January, it's freezing, but they're driving past Billy Bob's ice cream parlor, and immediately they start thinking, I must have an ice cream. I'm sure you've had that when you've been on holiday, and you've, you've, somebody else has got an ice cream, and immediately you think, oh, that's a really nice idea. And that goes from, oh, that's a nice idea, or the ice cream looks nice to... I wonder where they got it. I wonder where we could get it. And by the time you know it, you're trailing your whole family around every street of some random town because you must have ice cream. And it becomes the controlling passion of our lives. But what kind of target are we really aiming at? And is it really worth it? We need to learn to be content with the world as it is and not as we wish or hope that it might be. Now, actually, somebody said that at the conference we were at the week before last. It really resonated, probably partly because I had this in my head. <laughs> we need to be content with the world as it is, not as we wish or hope it might be. That's a huge thing in our culture. It's a huge thing. 
We are called to the world that we live in and not the one that we prefer. I wonder how many of us think, spend our time thinking, oh, when this happens, or if this happens, or when the kids are a little bit older. Trust me, you don't want that, by the way. (laughs) When they've left home. Well, when we have more time. When I earn a bit more money. When the house is tidy. Never. (laughs) When church does it the way that I really like. When we start singing songs from... You know, so many things that we spend our life going, when this? But actually, the opposite of coveting is learning to be content with the world that we are in right now. The one that God has called us to. It's about the place where we put our feet. Look down at your feet for a moment. This is the place where you are. I mean, maybe like in an hour you might put your feet in a slightly different place but it won't be so different your orbit now is where you are and that's the place that God has for you see the legitimate desire is trusting in God's provision and being content around our home and our family circumstances our job our finance our church whatever covetousness is that it is not content with God's provision. Covetousness is always peering over the fence to where we think that the grass is greener. But as someone wisely said, the grass may be greener, but it still needs cutting. You know, it's that looking over to something that is seemingly better, the impact of sin on, our, on the root of our desire. But it's not easy, is it? Because our motivations are constantly manipulated by our culture. Are you shamed by your phone? You need to get a new one. You need to upgrade. Are you shamed by your computer? Are you shamed by your sofa? I mean, how can you be shamed by a sofa? Surely you cannot be content with going on holiday to Shropshire. You need to go somewhere better, more exciting, more meaningful, with more kudos. And constantly we are bombarded with, you need more, you need better, you need a newer. And it doesn't matter whether it's a car, a mobile phone, a holiday, or your spouse. There is this bombardment with, you need more, newer, better, different. And all of that constantly digs into this root within us. There's a desire to have more than we have, more than God has given us. Some of you will have heard this before. John Rockefeller, the founder of the Standard Oil Company and the richest man in the world around the turn of the 1900s, was once asked... How much money is enough money? And he replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. It's always just a little bit more, isn't it? We always want just a little bit more. And there's so many stories in the Bible. And I just want you to turn, if you can, to 1 Kings chapter 21. 
I'm just going to read you the first few verses. In case you don't know, Ahab is the king in this story. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. None of you are ever like that, are you? So here we have Ahab. He sees this vineyard near to his palace and thinks, oh, that would be great. I'll make a garden there. He wants it. He's really cross because his terms are not accepted by Naboth. He becomes angry and sulky. Jezebel goes to see him and she says, what's the matter with you? And he says, well, I can't have this vineyard that I really want. She's like, it's fine, I'll sort it. She was not a great person. So she goes off, she plots against Naboth, she makes sure that he's stoned, and he takes the vineyard. Because Ahab covets the vineyard, and he allows that to grow up within him, it becomes a controlling passion. He owns virtually the whole kingdom. He has vineyards and gardens everywhere, and palaces and everything else, but he wants this one. And until he gets it, he's not going to be happy, so he's going to get it. You know, legitimate desire is within us. Sometimes we want things. But legitimate desire will sacrifice things for people. But covetous desire sacrifices people for things. So ask yourself, when something, a desire grows within you, whether it's for something trivial or something that's actually wrong, What am I sacrificing here? And is it better that I sacrifice the thing that I want for the people than the people for the thing? Because one is a desire that's part of how we're wired and we're made, but in the end we say, actually, people are more important than this. And the other says, actually, no, my happiness, the acquisition of this thing is more important than any of the people that might get affected. Are we sacrificing people for our desires? You know, on a global level, that's because I spend too much money on things that are really not important when actually I could give it to people who really need water and food and hygiene. Maybe it's that I sacrifice the way that I do my job on the altar of promotion and appreciation because actually I just want to climb up the ladder. Or maybe, and sadly this is too often true, we sacrifice our families on the altar of an affair because actually that is more important than the people that actually love us. You know, as we go to another story in 2 Samuel, which is just back a little bit, in chapter 12, here we have the story, the parable of Nathan the prophet. 
See, God needs to tell David something. So he sends Nathan to speak to David, and he says, there were two men in a town. One was really rich, and the other was really poor. And the rich man owned hundreds of sheep and cattle, and the poor man had nothing. He just had one little lamb. And that little lamb, he had raised it. It had grown up with him and his children, and the children fed it from the table, and he had fed it and every day, and it even slept in their bed with them. It was like a daughter to him. And then one day a traveler came to see the rich man, and the rich man said, you know what, I don't want to kill any of my sheep and goats from my flocks, I know what, I'll rip the little lamb from the arms of the poor man and I'll slaughter him and I'll feed him to my guest at the table. Well, David's horrified. He is horrified. He's full of anger. He says, that man should die for what he did. And Nathan turns around and he says, you are the man. It's not what you want to hear, is it? As a form of confrontation, it worked quite well. You know, because David, David wasn't at battle when he should have been. He was sunbathing on the roof of his palace and he saw Bathsheba bathing. And that little moment was utterly critical. And I'm sure we'll talk about this again. But the desire that came into his heart in that moment he allowed to grow. And he said, I want her. It didn't matter that he had wives and concubines, and we'll not talk about that. He wanted her. And because he was the king, when he said, come here, she came here. And he committed adultery with her, and she got pregnant. Mm, That wasn't part of the plan. And so he thought, oh, it's fine. I'll get Uriah back from the battlefield. And then natural courses will occur and then well it'll be fine won't it but Uriah said I'm not coming home and sleeping with my wife when all my mates are on the battlefield I'm not doing that because he had integrity unlike David and so David had to plot to kill him he murdered Uriah and when the baby was born the baby died too you know the thing is that legitimate desire will not lead to other sins, whereas covetous desire will. And so he coveted, and there was theft, and there was murder, and there was adultery, and there was dishonoring of people, and it was like a domino effect of sin. And we see that, don't we? And it all started with coveting, because that never stands alone. That's the invisible bit. But then it all becomes visible. So how do we prevent covetousness growing up in us? First of all, guard your heart. In Proverbs it says, guard your heart because it's the wellspring of your life. Guard your heart. As you all know, I'm completely rubbish at gardening. But even I know that if you see a little small weed and you pull it up, it's really, really easy. But if you just leave it, it gets bigger and stronger and more. 
guard your heart. You know, we get tempted. We feel desire. Sometimes those desires are corrupted by sin. But we need to deal with them straight away. We need to weed them out. We need to guard our heart. We need to notice the small things the intentions, the things where we are competitive. I mean, you know that I'm competitive, but I mean competitive, not as much as Phil, of course. Um, (laughs) um, But the competitive things where we think, I need better than what I've got. When we don't. I mean, sometimes you need new things. I need better because I need to be the same as everybody else. I need to be like them. I need to be better than them even. I need to be able to show off. When we see those little things within us, we need to nail them. It's that comparison thing, isn't it? I'm sure none of your children do this. Everyone else. Everyone else has got this. Therefore, I must have it. And we look around us and we also judge people why what we see, we actually don't know what's going on in their lives, just saying. But we think everyone else, therefore, I must And we absorb the culture around us and not the kingdom culture. The kingdom culture. And in that, we need to confess. You know, did I tell you this bit? I can't remember what I've said at which services. When I had the girls from the high school around, um, four groups of them, they could ask any question they wanted. Oh my word, it was hilarious. Do you think that only Christians go to heaven? That was fun. Has anyone ever shouted at you in the church? What did you do? Do you ever need to report people to the police? That was so. But my favourite one was this. Um, do you have one of those wooden boxes where people tell you their secrets? <laughs> I'm thinking of getting one. I think that would be cool. <laughs> no, I just said that people tell me their secrets without a wooden box, actually. <laughs> no, there's something about confession that actually is very healthy where we own things, where we're accountable, where we support each other, encourage each other, pray with and for each other, where there's a place for repentance and change. We need to set our hearts on things above. And you know what? A lot of that is through reading this. Because many of the hours of our day we are bombarded with the culture of our world. And if we want to fill our mind with a kingdom culture, then we need to read this, because this is where it tells us. And as we read the Bible, we are convicted of the sinful things within us that may not have grown into anything just yet. And as we pray, the presence of God convicts us of the things we need to deal with, and that's all about guarding our hearts. And we need to give freely because coveting is all about getting. But if we give, then our hands are open. And actually, it isn't just that it's kind of a verse that says it's more blessed to give than receive. It genuinely is, isn't it? You know, getting is like a cheap thrill. It's a moment. When you, I mean, I know because I've done this. I thought, I'm going to save up and I'm going to buy that jumper or that thing and I and like I get fixed on it and I think oh it'll be great and then there's this thrill but it's a moment it's the endorphin response that we are designed for 
But if we are open-handed, if we give, something happens in our hearts that means that getting is no longer so exciting anymore. The thrill of getting, of acquisition, is until the first scratch on the car. And you really just hope it's not you, it's somebody else in your family that does that. It's until it breaks. It's until your particular chosen phone brings out a new model. It's until the first argument when you realize that this relationship is not really so very different from the one that you thought you were leaving. If we give, our hands are open and not closed. And then just finally, I think something that is really, really important to us in our society today is this. It's about cultivating contentment. The story is told of a fisherman. A rich businessman finds a fisherman sitting lazily by his boat. Why aren't you out there fishing, he asked. Because I've caught enough fish for today. Why don't you catch more fish than you need, the rich man asked. What would I do with them, asked the fisherman. You could sell them for more money, came the impatient reply. You could buy a bigger and better boat, go into deeper water, catch even more fish and make loads of money. Soon you could have a fleet of fishing boats and be rich like me. The fisherman asked, then what would I do? You could sit down and enjoy life, said the businessman. <laughs> the fisherman looked at him and said, what do you think I'm doing now? <laughs> Everything about our culture pushes us. Don't be happy with that amount of money. Don't be happy with that house. Don't be happy with those things. Don't be happy with that life partner. Don't be happy with your children. Make them better, bigger, faster, stronger, whatever. <laughs> Don't be happy with your holiday. Don't be grateful. Always want more. And God's word says, don't covet. Don't covet. And that's something in our heart that is behind many of the other things that we'll be talking about in these next weeks ahead. And so actually that's the place that we have to come to God to respond to him, to let him shine his light. This is not a judgmental sermon, by the way, if you happen to have booked a nice holiday to the Maldives. This is about your heart and what God is saying to you. Not about anyone else. This is not about anyone else. It's not for you to get your torch out and shine it in the face of the person next to you. It's for you to let God speak to you. And if there's things that you need to weed out right now, to do that. So Matt's going to lead us and the prayer team will be here. Um, by the way, we've said this before whenever we talk about these topics. If you come to the front, no one will assume anything. You might be coming because you've got a sore toe, all right? <laughs> so we made that pledge together. <laughs> um, but respond to God and let him speak to you.